0: Hey there, it's Erica, and you're listening to Better Product. We are the show that celebrates great digital products and the people and processes that make them stronger. So, before we jump into today's episode, I want everyone here to take a moment to pause. Think back to when you were in high school or middle school. If you're like most people, you probably didn't love the way you looked or existed in the world. Your personality was a work in progress. And overall, you had a lot of room to grow. We see a similar thing happen in product. All companies and all products have to start somewhere, but the beginning is just that, a beginning. We should never forget there's room to evolve. The trick is this, when is the right time to give your product a glow up? Today, Christian and Megan are sharing their advice on product renovations and transformations. We'll talk about why we do them and how to pull them off successfully. Let's hear more. Well, good morning, better product host. How's your week?
1: Good morning. It's- I
2: think you just literally woke Megan up with that. She didn't <laughs> even know we were doing this. She was like, what? What Here's time is Wake up
1: call.
0: Yeah. I'm a morning person, so I have forced Megan and Christian to be morning people with me and we are recording well, I this think
1: Christian's also a morning person
2: to an extent. like
1: you guys are you both been up since 4 a.m. and I have not so I'm
2: uh yeah I love mornings but in the afternoon we usually record I'm usually getting pretty loopy and more lucid so I don't know what effect that'll have on the things I'm going to say this morning so I'm pretty excited to see what happens
0: well if you're loopy and lucid in the afternoon what are you in the morning I was like, yeah, those are two different
2: things. Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> See, already, clearly I'm flustered. You caught You're me in a You're not a real lie. morning person. <laughs> this whole time I thought I was. I'm really not. <laughs> well,
0: it takes practice. I, I didn't become a morning person until college, really, which I think is the opposite of what most people do. But, hey, it worked
2: for me. Yep. I was a morning person in college, but it was more like 4 a.m. from like the previous night. A little bit different for me.
0: Yeah, a little different for me. <laughs> it's technically true. You know, it's always morning if you're already awake. Yeah. So If you never yeah. go to sleep. <laughs> you never go to sleep. Exactly. Well, I love that we're starting with college. Our icebreaker today is meant to get us in like a nostalgic mood, which is going to. Parallel with the theme of what we're talking about. So, this will make sense in a minute for our listeners. But I wanted to ask for our icebreaker what's something that always makes you feel nostalgic? And this could be anything like an object, a movie, a person.
1: What gives you a feeling of nostalgia? I might be about to steal Christian's answer. It's an easy answer, which is music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, anytime you hear a song that you haven't heard in years, and then you remember the last time that you heard it, like that always makes me nostalgic. And especially because I'm a millennial, I haven't had iPods my whole life or mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, modern technology. Uh, and when I was in high school, I had an old car, like I drove my grandpa's old car that only uh, used CDs, like I couldn't hook anything else up to it and so my friends and I all had to burn CDs in high school if we wanted to listen to it and now all those old CDs are like still in my car at home so if I ever like get there and I'm like oh crap I don't have the thing to plug in my phone I can actually listen to one of those CDs and I'll be like oh I remember the last time we listened to this like 10 years ago on the way to this party or that homecoming or you know something Mm. like that which is it's it's like a time capsule almost what stands uh, out
0: in your CD collection
1: I made them all. <laughs> like it was all burned from iTunes. Well, what legally.
0: was your favorite?
1: Yeah, le- legally. Um, the Like uh, that I made, I don't remember. Because it was just like whatever 20 or so songs we liked at that point in time. I remember the first two CDs I got were uh, Britney Spears, Oops I Did It Again, and Sync, No Strings Attached for my eighth nice. birthday. Nice. I love it.
2: I think uh, when I got my first eight? CDs, eight? no, I was a little bit older than that. CDs weren't really out yet, I think. One of my first tapes was like Vanilla Ice, and then CDs, probably like sixth grade, so maybe 12. But yeah, music's a good answer, because music is truly, I I actually keep a, a journal of songs, and I eventually want to turn into like a, a mini memoir of each song, and what you know, part of my life it pertains to. It started thinking Mm. about it like for my kids, but um, it could be interesting anyway. So a lot of times the songs aren't even related like to what I was doing at the time. It's just like what I was listening to and my memory is so tied to it. But right now, what's interesting as somebody who just turned 40 and grew up really in the 90s is this throwback to the 90s. And it got me thinking how it's weird how kids now are like forcing nostalgia on all of us uh, old millennials or Gen Xers, like where we're like, we don't have it. Like you're reminding us with these baggy jeans and Jinkos are coming back or even like target selling Nirvana shirts. It's like, that's like when I got into the Beatles and Led Zeppelin when I was a teenager, but it's funny now because they sell these clothes. And so whether you want to be nostalgic or not, it's like immediately I'm taken back because some kids were in Nirvana and maybe doesn't even know them or knows of them, but like I remember buying their album and when Walmart wouldn't carry it because of some of the lyrics and stuff. So I wa- I could walk down Broad Ripple Ave right now or New York and just like be immediately taken back because the style is a throwback to yeah. when I grew up.
1: Why did anyone want to bring back 2000 Style in the first place? I'm already – I'm still mad about that. Like that was the worst probably decade for Style in the last 100 years.
2: No, I agree. And that's what
1: we decided to bring back.
2: I mean I just think there's no choice. I don't – I I've now believe that nobody – looks at the decades and thinks like should we bring this back it's pretty much just going to happen so yeah, like all these gen z's walking year. around with new styles any of the new style they're going it's going to come back when they're in their late 30s they're going to hate it
0: mm. christian oh, i've lot met people yep. who think nirvana is a clothing brand <laughs> how, how do you feel about how do you feel about that
2: it really hurts yeah it really hurt people probably don't even like realize that foo fighters came from the wreckage of Nirvana. Like there's right. that that's like kind of shocks me. It's like some of the most mediocre radio rock came from one of the greatest like post like punk bands, grunge bands ever. Right. Sorry. I like Dave Grohl in general, but I, I was talking it's about It's okay, he writers. doesn't
1: listen to this podcast, so you don't have to
2: Oh he doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well no, I guess never mind then. I don't really want to say it behind his back. I thought he listened. No,
1: I'm
0: gonna send it anyway, to him directly. A great guy.
2: Yeah. The music is fine, but it's just really average. And if if yeah. you go listen to Nirvana now, it still feels really edgy. And it would like shock you that that was his first. Well, I think it was the second band, but yeah. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Um, all this to say, you know, I I'm not bringing up nostalgia for no reason, for for audience, because today we are talking about glow
2: ups. So I totally not, knew what this was. Totally did FYI. not.
0: No, <laughs> we had to educate Christian a little bit, um, but that's okay. We're all learning about each other in different times. But yeah, for, for those of you in the audience who do know what a glow up is, you'll probably think about you know the memes of people posting photos of themselves in their awkward middle school phase and then them 10 years later when they have a family and a, the job and a house like they've truly grown up and glowed up um, and that's glowed up. Glown up.
2: <laughs> sure, we just stumbled on something. I actually kind of like blown up because it's like grown up, blown up, Glown up. blown it's up. It's like yeah.
0: a meshed word. I like that. Yeah. Needless also, to, to say. Be fair,
1: with very, with very little detail, Christian understood the concept. As soon as we started absolutely. explaining it to him, he's like, Oh, that's like my favorite movie. She's all that. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I think it's a concept a lot of us can understand because a lot of us have been through it, right? All of us have that period in our life where maybe we want to have buried or like not have people remember, whether it comes down to appearances or behavior or something else. But anyways, like there's a lot of potential in glow-ups, right? It shows us that over time, things can and will usually get better. And there are choices that we make along the way to get there. And so all this to say, it inspired us to think about when glow-ups... Happen in product um, because we do see that from time to time, and we see it a lot in our work at Innovate Map too, as Christian and Megan explained to me. Um, so that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about when products go from being relatively unknown or they're in their awkward phase to making some decisions that transform their presence and who they are. So Christian, Megan, I wanted to start by asking. You know, we talked a lot in our prep about when these product glow-ups tend to happen because timing is ultimately really important. When is it time for a glow-up or time to consider one?
1: Well, I think it's when you have something to start with. You kind of have to have a mess in front of you in order to make it look and act a lot better. You know, it's you can't just like um, give something a makeover out of thin air. And so like, what does that mean? as applied to product, is it means you need to have tried some stuff, you need to have had something built, you need to be selling it, even if it doesn't look its best, there needs to be some semblance of a brand, you know, name, colors, whatever, around it, just so that it is its own thing, before you consider actually changing it.
2: Yeah, that was kind of where when we were preparing for the show, we hit on was these glow ups that you, you all were showing me of people like in middle school or the awkward phase or whatever. And then today I started thinking about, you know, these early stage startups when you're trying to find whether you have something, like you said, Megan, like product market fit or you just have a hypothesis. Is there something here? That's the awkward phase because you're kind of trying to find yourself. And I think that's what's happening when you're like becoming a teenager as you're trying to find yourself. And so there's some people that try to like, you know, quote unquote, glow up too soon or grow up too soon. And it's before you know who you are. Like for me personally, I think I don't really feel like I understood who I fully was until my mid 20s. So it took me a while. So if I had so if you look at pictures of me, I was experimenting with all kinds of stuff. I was wearing Dickies and Jinkos, and I had a silver chain one day and I'm wearing Nirvana shirt. I just didn't know I was trying everything. Now I know who I am and I kind of like know how to be myself, but it took me a while. And I think for products in the early stages, some try to brand too soon before they kind of know who they are. But some of the best ones you don't really hear about until they're over a million ARR because they were so busy just like selling and and building something to get something out there. So I would say the glow up happens once you start figuring out whether you have a viable market and whether you have a viable business. And then when that happens, you, you almost like go back and start cleaning everything up to really scale it.
1: Yeah, because when you think about it from a, a brand perspective, it's the same thing as like... Um, trying to pick a new wardrobe that will last you for the next 10 years when you still haven't figured out what your personality is you shouldn't come up with the new most beautiful most eye catching brand and market when you still don't know what your product is because you don't know if it's going to be catching the right eyes
0: Mm, i like that a lot so there's that brand part right like the wardrobe the external look that communicates the driving idea behind your product Uh, Christian, you said something really important around this in our prep. You know, you mentioned sometimes having like a low fidelity product in the beginning in terms of design can actually be to your advantage. Can you explain that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I had just gotten off a call actually before we did our prep with, with a founder and they were talking about when to revamp their product as well. And I was telling them what I tell a lot of founders, which is don't be afraid of effectively selling services or something in the beginning, because you're really just trying to see, do people want to buy a solution to the problem that you have? But even more so, I was telling them, you know, actually, there's something to be said about if you can make it when you have a, a kind of lackluster brand and a, like a crappy UX, that's a really good proof point, which is almost counter to what Megan and I do with Innovate Map. And I, you know, I'd be careful not to like, sit, you know, go against what we do, because we are trying to help products do better. But we as an agency don't work with companies unless they know what they have. We we typically don't work with a company that's in the exploration phase because we wanna make sure that you know and you have some conviction and a little bit of certainty about what you're doing before you spend money on us. And we learned that the hard way, which is we've worked with companies too early and I felt you know at the end, was it the best use? Did it really help? And, and I don't know. And then you see some extreme examples of companies during this huge economic boom in tech over the last two years that have only invested in brand and you think, what do they actually have at the core? They can tell a good story. Think about the We Crash documentary, but they're sort of like hollow in in the middle. And that's what you want to be careful of by focusing away from that. But getting back to your question, I would say that, there's an advantage to almost being able to sell a clunky product because now you've actually connected with a real problem. And you've probably got some really strong advocates for your product that love you for all your warts. And so once you've kind of gotten past that, then you can do your glow up and hit a broader market that will have maybe higher standards.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And it's Like Christian said, we're not undercutting what we do. We're just kind of putting some clarity around when what we do is most effective. And so that's when this clunky product exists. Somebody's already gotten it figured out. And we come in and we just help them present themselves a little bit better. I'm going to keep relating this to like nostalgic makeover stuff, like uh, what not to wear. I don't know if you guys ever watched that, Mm -hmm. but what they would always say, like every time somebody went on an episode of what not to wear, it was like... um, you know, this is the best person ever. That's why I nominated my friend. The world can't see them the way we see them. And it's time for that to change. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about these kind of products. It's like founders come to us and we're like, that's a really great idea. Like this could be the best product ever. But obviously the world can't see that right now with the way you're presenting it to the world. And so that's where we come in uh, and really work most of our magic. Mm.
2: Two most reference shows <laughs> and innovate map is what not to wear and property brothers. And what not to wear I used to watch a lot. They used to have men on the show in the beginning and I was oh, I would like watch they about, oh, and then like stopped. Um and then lame. I don't think I dropped the table, but you're totally right.
0: It's lame that they stopped that. I had no idea that they well, had I think it was only because on. they were
2: all doing the same thing. They were just wearing baggy cargo shorts. It was just like <laughs> there's only so many times you can have that guy on the yeah. show. <laughs>
1: There's, many, there's only so many bad ways a straight man can dress. Yeah, they, right. <laughs> I yeah. think most of their viewership was women, and the women were watching a lot of it, like, you know, to apply to themselves. And then they'd have an episode about a man. The woman's like, well, I already told my husband to stop wearing cargo shorts. Like, what am I supposed to get out of this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that's probably why.
2: Yeah. I think you're onto something, though, because I love how you talk about the, what the friends who nominate them for that show say, because that does feel like your first users, your first uh, customers, they're your strongest advocates. And I think you can tie that to the innovation curve, which you know, the early adopters, you get people that will put up with a lot initially, and those are the people that actually will even help you hone the product because they might connect with the vision that you have and that's the stage where they're not buying you because you look good or because the UX is good. They're buying you because you're connecting with something that they have. But those next stages, the I can't remember all the stages. All I remember is early adopters and the laggards. But then there's like two or three stages in the middle, the bell curve. Those are the those are the people that may require a little bit more. But those early stages, they just like love you for who you are and mm. that's really a good proof point that you have something before you do your glow up. Yeah. Wow,
0: this is a lot of themes are like coalescing for me here as I think about this more. So, like those early adopters, those people who are really giving you good feedback are kind of like your real friends, right? Like, think, thinking in the middle school illustration, like they're the ones who know you, who see this potential in you that maybe you don't see, um, and are trying to help you get to your real personality. So, you have that part of the equation. But then you also have all this peer pressure of like trends, um, being popular in the case of product, like maybe adopting a look and feel in your brand that isn't true to yourself and true to the promise you are trying to fulfill in your product. Do you see that playing out here too? Like this tension between those early adopter feedback and wider peer pressure from brand and design trends? And how how do product leaders deal with that?
1: It's funny. It's like that, you know, the one kid that was like on the fringe of the popular group. And you're like, that kid should really be a nerd, you know. But I know what he's doing. Like I know how he got himself in there, and slowly hey, I over think the I years, might have been that guy. Yeah. <laughs> be careful. Slowly over the years, like that guy starts to realize, okay, like maybe these aren't my real friends, and I do better over here. And he starts dressing a little bit differently or finding another group and that's kind of what i think about companies who let's say they come out of the gate thinking i need to look the trendiest in market like i haven't even figured out what the hell my product is going to do yet but i need to look like you know purple with gradients and you know is cooler than instagram and all this kind of like i need to look basically like any other unicorn but they still don't know what they do and so that's that guy as long as we're drawing parallels, because then over the years, it comes pretty clear to the market that this product, this company is not how they look. They're doing some things that are a little bit misleading or fake, essentially. And then once the market starts to figure out who they really are, it's like, well, why do they look like that? And then those companies either fail if they don't change because people become unimpressed and disillusioned or, they decide, okay, yeah, you're right. We should rebrand. We should look more like what we actually do. And then they come to somebody like us.
2: I would say too, when you're doing brands, Megan, I, it's like you, you're typically going to do something that's trendy, but I think it it always just has to be intentional uh, behind it. I think I think even when you describe that, the guy on the fringe of the group, it's just something inauthentic. And I was thinking like all of these movies that are, that are tropes or references to like Pygmalion and My Fair Lady, which when they do that with someone in the, the teen years, the the movie always has them like going full on with the cool crowd. And there's always this point where they they have to then like bully or insult their previous nerd crowd. And they are like secretly meeting with their nerd friend on the side. And then that then this thing happens and there's a rift and the nerd friend's like, you've changed and they're like, No, I haven't, but that, but then it's like the end is some medium of like the person figures out how to be cool without losing themselves. And that's, I I feel like what you're saying, Megan, because I don't want anybody to hear it and be like, look, you can't, you know, if you're in this vertical software, say you're, you're working in manufacturing or something and you do want to look trendy, we're not saying to not do it, but you have to be intentional because even the pre-show, Megan, you were talking about examples of brands like snap or even facebook that when they revamped their ui if there's no intent behind it it alienates those people who like really were your your core friends in the beginning yeah
1: completely agree with that yeah well i wanted to get to like the
0: the get deeper into like the unicorn examples we talked about in prep like this idea that Okay, like you become very beloved in the beginning, you successfully make it into the popular crowd, whether it's on virtue of the product or not. But like you're saying, there's a point where something must give, where you get too far away from who you really are, and who really supports you, and then you don't make decisions based on that anymore. So I wanted to unpack some some of the examples we talked about there. So you mentioned Snapchat, Facebook, what what lessons can our listeners learn from those
2: moments? I think to, to, to help categorize it, you have to imagine a growth curve. And I think what you're asking is, is those companies that are maybe on the, the not later stage, but beyond growing up, like, how do you sort of manage that? Right. Yeah. I think. I think it's, I mean, when to do a rebrand or when to do a product refresh are, it's really like judgmental, meaning that you have to just have good product judgment. So I'll speak from the, from the UX side, but I think the way that I view it, there's a term in product development called technical debt, tech debt, which is basically like over time as you're building new features, there's bugs and you kind of just like ignore them and ignore them and ignore them. And that accrues this like debt that you owe the product and you you let bugs go because you're like, ah, that's pretty small or that's an edge case. But as they start adding up, like all of a sudden it becomes a big problem and your product becomes clunky. And so you have to re-architect your product or you've got to really do that. That analogy works for a lot of different things in products. So I'll use that with UX debt or product debt. And as you're on the hustle and the grind to get more users, you accrue the UX debt. And as a UX designer, I would say things like, oh, well, that's something we're going to have to deal with down the line, but not going to really hurt us right now. And some of that is because you haven't built the expertise in your product. Like you don't have power users yet, but those people will have problems later. So eventually there's a judgmental point where you have to look and say, all of these things, this experience of our product is starting to hurt us. And I think there's two ways that you see that. One, you see people starting to leave or an, another, like another new product has come out and is stealing users away with a more refined experience. If that's happening, you, that's a, like a red alarm. Like You have got to revamp your product because the cost of switching is super low in most industries. And so if people are starting to leave for a, 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 a new entrant to the market, that's, that's, that's really urgent. But I think the second way that you start to do that, which is a better way is thinking, is your experience of the product holding you back from innovating? Like if you find yourself saying, I wanna do this feature, this feature is like, yeah, it's kind of hard, but we need to revamp this first. That's a good point where you need to do it because you never want your product to be held back innovative wide, but by your own technical or UX debt. And so if you feel that that's happening, you've got to take care of it because that will happen before the market realizes it or your users realize it. And then you'll be able to sort of leapfrog ahead of the competition that way. And sorry, one more (laughs) metaphor on there that we talked about in the pre-show. And I can't remember what animals were involved in this race, but it's the, it's the idea that if you're in a race, let's just say it's a turtle and a fox, not the tortoise and the hare. But if you're behind, you can say, I'm going to keep gaining 50% on this person. If you say that you're never going to pass the other person So the turtle says, I just need to cut this distance in half and keep doing that over and over again. The turtle never passes the Fox. And so that's kind of the idea behind innovation is like, if you just keep making those tweaks and not addressing the fundamental experience, you're never going to leap ahead of that competition. You're just going to keep making incremental changes. So a glow up on the product side really has to be done forward thinking in in my opinion.
1: Hmm. Yeah, the turtle has to get on a skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> Are um, his legs long enough for that? I'm going to right
2: while you answer Megan, I'm going to go Google if there's any turtles on skateboards.
1: Okay. So, <laughs> from from the brand side, there's a lot that ties together here. The way to determine when you need to rebrand or you need a brand refresh we talk a lot about, I feel like on this show, and we talk about more so, let's say, brand debt, which is something we've talked a little bit about today. It's similar to product debt. It's where um, you've been going out, you've been selling this for a while, but you know your look just hasn't caught up to what you're actually offering your customers, or you're targeting a much wider audience than you were before. And so you need your look to catch up. And to grow up with you. But the other side of this, when you might need a rebrand or a brand refresh is more applicable to maybe some of these unicorns or some of these companies that looked at brand first and went out there and made the trendiest thing they could see with no real product substance. And like if the market's kind of figured you out and associates you with trickery essentially through marketing, like that brand is just a shell it doesn't have a great product behind it. Then what happens if you do actually put some time and effort into your product and your product catches up But now you're actually selling something really great that the market would love, but they already have this impression of you that you've kind of been posing this whole time. So that's when it's another time that you should rebrand or consider a brand refresh to change the market's perception and kind of realign what your product does with what your brand looks like.
0: Mm, yeah, so being true to yourself really does matter. Right, apparently, apparently, <laughs> very oversimplified way to summarize that,
2: but it's the- it's funny though because I mean you talk about unicorns, Megan, and there's some yeah. today in the market. I know this week as we we're recording, you know, the stock market is just plummeting for tech, yeah. and the stories about Peloton and some of these other you know quote darlings of COVID are struggling. And I would um, I don't think Zoom is struggling in their fundamentals, but Peloton is one of the the challenges is peloton's brand and their brand not just visual identity and all that but through their instructors has been so strong it was almost too strong and then they exploded due to events that were outside their control which was you know people staying home and not going to gyms now i don't know that they've had a chance to figure out who they are they like they got popular but didn't know why it's like they their parents moved into like the wealthy gated community and they were just there. And so they are like, wow, I, I guess I'm popular now, but that like kept them from figuring out what they needed to be or what they should be. And I was reflecting how I have a, a gym membership. I have a Peloton membership and I have a bike. And then I also I also have a FitBot app for weightlifting. It's like, why do I still have all these things? What is Peloton trying to be? And I think that's a problem that some of these brands have, and I'm not trying to criticize Peloton. I can't imagine how hard it would be to just be making money hand over fist, but maybe not really knowing like what you have to do. And so that's where I come from the product side and say brand isn't their problem. I bet it's challenging for them to figure out what do we innovate on? They, they just can't figure that part out. And part of their glow up, um, as it were, would require that they make a massive uh, shift or addition to what they do from the feature side, from the product side.
0: Decide what to be and go be it, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. And that's a risk too, because we talked about: Do you know who you are? And I think maybe they don't know who they are. Like it's 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 really tough. I mean, that's why we talked about like why glow ups are hard, because when do you know who you are at your core? And oh, by the way, I'm 40. I'm not the same person I was when I was 25. <laughs> so it doesn't really stay permanent either. It kind of has to evolve over time. So it's I think yeah. there's this constant sort of like you have to keep looking at yourself and, and realigning with with who you are.
0: Yep. It's 100% a process.
2: 100%. That sounds like
0: a great place to end, though. I mean, just to have our listeners carry that philosophy with them. It's a process of knowing who you are. Try to stay aligned to that um, and make changes that that speak to your product vision that's working and not not necessarily trends. So awesome. I wish um, my
1: real friends had told me not to get bangs and also wear Build-A-Bear bows <laughs> in my hair. That would have been real nice. Build-A-Bear bows? <laughs> Aw. Yeah, because you know the bears were expensive, but the bows were free, and they had whole drawers of them, exactly in every uh-huh. color. And it was like right, right around true. the time that you know everybody was wearing pigtail braids, and then the little you know the bump that bumpets did, but you needed something to hold the. Bump. Yep. <laughs> and what are you gonna do? Different color Build-A-Bear bow for every day. That's that's so,
2: translate rad. the Build-A-Bear bow in, into something, audience. Yeah. <laughs> what is your Build-A-Bear bow that you're <laughs> going to be wearing right now?
1: What is your product feature that nobody wants but they're scared to tell you?
2: I wish more of my friends had told me that I couldn't really grow facial hair and so I should just shave that goatee. It's not working. Ooh. So what is your goatee that's not working? <laughs> these oh. are I mean
1: I know we're joking but these are kind of these questions kind of work. They they do they
0: work. Do. Yeah, cool.
1: Well, thank you for
0: uh, walking through this with me and everyone listening. We're excited to say that we'll be diving into this topic a little bit more in the coming weeks. We'll be speaking with the CEO of Evernote, Ian Small, coming up here in a few episodes. Ian's actually embarked on this journey with Evernote, a note-taking and productivity app, for those of you unfamiliar, and they've gone through an incredible product glow up in the last year, and Ian's going to walk us through all of that, so We'll be sharing that soon. As always, join us in Slack if you haven't already. Uh, We'd love to talk to you directly about our episodes there. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
2: Thanks for joining us. And if you haven't yet, be sure to join the Better Product Community. We've got all sorts of content and resources for you. And if you want more audio, don't forget, The Business of Product is our latest show to join the Better Product Network. And you can find that and more at betterproduct.community.